Heather Tunnell and Jeremy Tunnell. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Plowline Podcast. My name is Jeremy Tunnell, and I am your host with my co-host, Jerry Balarosa Tunnell. Good morning, everyone. And today we are joined by two very awesome guests that we are glad to have on once again. We've got Tamiko Davis and David Jackson joining us today for a group conversation uh, where we are going to come together and cover a number of subjects. David, how you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm doing great. And that's, that's Dr. David Jackson, just to be clear. To when I didn't put the doctor in, in the introduction, I was actually thinking, shoot, I missed it. He actually looked at me. He gave me a glance. He was like, you forgot I, the doctor. I, I, I don't know about that. Know. How's it going, Tamiko? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for having me and us. And it's good to see everyone. Good. Good. So let's dive right in. Um, uh, David, I'm going to let you kick it off. We didn't practice that. No, we didn't. No, we, we didn't. didn't. <laughs> we, I think we've just been kind of talking a lot, especially with, um, you know, um, going, you know, just talking about racial equity, diversity, inclusion, and kind of like our everyday conversations. But David always has a way to kind of like go a little bit deeper. Yeah. So, right? but yes. I'm going to make sure <laughs> that we are honoring what you've done, which is... Oh, honoring honoring the land that All we're right, on right let's now. Let's go. Yes, we go are honoring we're honoring the land and thank you so much for having us here. We are on the ancestral land of the Snohomish tribe. So we raise our hands to our tribal members. Yes, thank you. You know, interesting because these are everyday conversations. Uh Jerry and I have been talking about this land and and um, and it chatted with a number of our friends who are from local Native American tribes. And um, I think we now are up to about three um, who, when we asked them, so, you know, this is where we live. Whose land is this? All three of them are kind of like, well, this was like a, a place where they traveled through, but no one actually like lived here. Like maybe there was a village, you know, like like maybe a small little family, but there's no tribe here. Um, this would have been hunting grounds, Woodenville, um, that valley up going mm. up towards the mountains, moving into Issaquah, following the Sammamish River and the Sammamish, uh, you know, Lake Sammamish, and then up there. This would have been a pass-through area between the the Snohomish tribe, um, which were much more up in the foothills and up in the mountains, um, and the coastal region is what they've is is what mm-hmm. we've gotten for feedback, and so it's it's interesting because we have this idea that that uh, oh yeah you know I mean. You know, there were villages everywhere, but the villages made logical sense. You know, they they were. I also think that through the travels, though, right, we honor the land because they traveled through this land. Certainly. So their footprints are here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, there could be in travel, there's like a lot of change as well, too. They could have like lost some people. You know, people could have been born during this travel time and everything like that. So I think the uh, imprint is still upon this land. Indeed. I think also. There's just a very different connotation and relationship to the land that um, I've come to understand more so um, that Native people hold than others. Mm-hmm. The idea of owning land right. <laughs> is a very different construct um, in Native culture. And right. so, yeah. you know, of course it's a pass through. I mean, it's everyone's land and we don't own it. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't like. You know, it came after you know our native you know relatives were born. It was here, so the idea that you own something that was here before you is somewhat antithetical. So they were stewards. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. They were. Yep. Yeah. To use our to use our word. Mm-hmm. Do we think Seattle? I went to Vancouver not too long ago and went to um, Stanley Park, mm. and they had an area that was dedicated for the natives. And they have totem poles, and the totem poles obviously tell a story. Do we think the Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle area and Pacific Northwest, does a good job of telling the native story? 
good question. Because you hear about, you know, the cities, Issaquah, Seattle, Cleelum, mm-hmm. right? There's a ton of cities, actually, that are named after Native Americans or from Native Americans. But is there... I mean, I, I think back I to school, Washington history. I don't remember right. much. I don't. I don't think so. I think. I think it is starting to change, though. Um, you know, like over in the Edmond School District, they are actually starting to honor the land before meetings, and they've mm. never done that before. They've never done that before. So I can see that the narratives are starting to change, and I think the more of us that will actually take time to find out whose land are we on yeah then it's going to be a language where everyone's going to know whose land we're on right mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think and i i wouldn't speak for them but um in my experience for um, the conversations with some of our friends um that answer would probably be no yeah, yeah you know it's not it's not well re- represented right. um it's um, were you speaking institutionally or were you speaking just in general? Overall. In general, right? Which would include, because I was educated here in Washington, Washington history. When I think back to a number of classes, you know, what you hear about sort of is the European culture oh, of right. the U.S. And yes, because we're yes. in Seattle and Native American history here is extremely strong. I mean, all over the U.S., but certainly here. Because even as you travel, you don't hear a number of cities being named after Native Americans. Here you do. Mm-hmm. And so, and I saw it again when we were up in Vancouver. I'm like, why don't I know more? Now, I certainly could by going off and doing my own research. But the fact that we're in this land, we in this should area, know, right? it should have already been sort yeah. of cast on us many moons ago. So that you grow up as a, as a, as a part of where you are right that it's already yep. like sort of in yep. your fabric right yep. and i don't exactly i don't see that and i'm wondering and yeah, maybe it was there. just me maybe i wasn't listening in class maybe i wasn't reading the newspaper at the right time you know but it, it doesn't feel like it feels like we're still kind of experiencing things for the first time you know much like the, even like the misty copelands oh the, the first black principal ballerina it's like why are we still having firsts yeah. right well, knowing that this stuff <laughs> right been, right you know, it's and, and, and it's good right it's, it's good to still that we are, since we're not all the way to where we need to be, I guess it is still good that we're having firsts. Yeah. But it's like, but why are we still having them? Like, I, again, we, sh- it feels like we should know more. And if it's just me, then shame on me for being ignorant. But it. No, it's not you. No, it's not think, you, girl. I, I, don't <laughs> I don't think it's you. I think, you know, to, to your broader point, I think the reason we are still having first is that irrespective of these first, in many respects, they are still exceptions. And the fact yes. that they are exceptions or called out as first is an underscore of the work that is still required. Right. Which is we are viewing these exceptions or first against a broader um, structural narrative that is, uh, in many respects, um, the hurdle. Mm that many of these individuals have to accomplish in order to get over. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I just wanted to let, um, just, you know, put in a plug that, to let our listeners know that most of the time when we do these podcasts, it's unstructured. And so we, we talk about what's on top of mind, we talk about what's on our hearts, and um, if you're just tuning in for the first time, and you have any questions, just feel free to reach out and ask us but we're gonna we just kind of like just dig right on in <laughs> we just <laughs> jump in that's how we pretty much do it that's how we roll that is how we roll it's a conversation <laughs> it is it it's is about it's about dialogue it's about having a conversation it's it's about sharing it's about sharing stories and so we can just jump in on on any part of anything without any structure so what you got for us d <laughs> Oh wow! Um, <laughs> you, were ta- you were talking about who you thought were was going to run. Maybe yeah, we needed right, for right, 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 right. Yeah, um, yeah. I've been you know watching the um, Democratic primaries, and they're interesting. You know, um, lots of people jumping. Lots into, of people um, really yes. early. <laughs> yeah, very this, early. Um, very early. early. But what's interesting is, as there are. As many people as there are, I don't know if there are equally as many lanes for these people mm. to pursue. 
Um, you know, you have the uh, the establishment. You kind of have the progressives. You kind of have the woman's lane that is really incredible, which I think is going to prevail. Mm-hmm. You have some, you know, generational folks. You have some traditional folks. And so I think everyone's kind of, you know, the lanes are becoming clearer, but they also are becoming more populated. Right. And so I think many of those candidates are going to cancel each other out. But um, there are a few that I think are interesting. Um, I, you know, first and foremost, love uh, Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. Um, We were talking earlier and I was like, you know, if I look at any of the candidates, I'm like, wow. You know, she comes from you know, one of the largest economies in the world. Um, and having uh, led that uh, state of California, I think is just an amazing uh, accomplishment. And I like her. Uh, one, she's a bison. So, yes, go Howard University. Um, <laughs> you know, look, you got to recognize, you got to recognize when you recognize, right? Um, I just find her to be really compelling. Then on the other end, um, you know, I think uh, Pete Buttigieg is very interesting as well. Um, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about him um, as a gay millennial, I think those are two um, identities that are actually allowing him to have a level of significance in this primary season. And I often have questioned whether the attention would be equal if he was simply merely perceived as a white male, mm-hmm. particularly in this period in which you have so many women um, running who are yeah. creating a very different type of conversation. And so, you know, I, you know, I think he's phenomenal. Um, uh, Castro is also very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. um, he's a little quieter. I kind of need him to you know, make a little bit more noise and kind of get in the fray. You have some of the folks who are kind of the more uh, household names, uh, Sanders, Warren, Biden, Biden to a degree. And I kind of lump them in kind of a same generational sure. context. Um, and again, I think the reason I, a number of these folks are going to um, uh, kind of cancel each other out is because folks are going to start looking for combinations. Okay, so do I get, you know, a woman leader who's progressive? Do I get, you know, this type of advance on progressive issues? And so how do I kind of assemble these together in one of the best types of packages that I can? And so I think that's going to be the interesting piece of, of the primary season. But I think there's some good people out there. All this is geared up and and rolling for one sole reason, and that is to make Trump a one-term president. Right. And the big question is, is can it be done? Because honestly, I, I've never seen anybody who has a better Teflon coating than Donald Trump. Think about all the scandal that is around him, and it literally is falling off right off of him i don't know if it's falling off tell me tell me something that's not uh, uh, go ahead yeah I, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta agree with my friend over here go ahead. <laughs> there's probably some things that are sticking but they don't seem to really be holding him back mm-hmm. and so you know it is interesting that there are so many people on the democratic side coming forward to try and prevent right even howard schultz ex-ceo from starbucks is you know thinking about it and somebody in the audience yelled out at one of his town halls you know you're gonna cause us to have trump again i don't remember quite the words that he used but that that's but he was very vocal yes. and he's just like we got too many people running in this field that's gonna end up with we're gonna end up with hillary again right meaning that someone who gets defeated by trump right because one of the other folks potentially at that time might have been able to beat Trump, and then you know here we, here we ended up in a situation where it felt kind of 50-50, and fifty-one versus forty-nine, as you tipped that tipped that way, and so now we have Trump. Mm-hmm. I uh, I agree with you about the Teflon, and I didn't think I thought at this point there would be enough underway 
the, where we'd be heading down the path of impeachment. So did and I. knowing that, you know, the, the Mueller report came out not that long ago, and here we are with, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's the strangest thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's like living in a, an alternate universe, and I don't know. At one point, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, this, okay, it'll be one turn, he'll get impeached. No, okay, probably not at this point, but how things are going. Okay, will he be one term? And now you're sort of looking at this field of Democrats. I kind of shrug my shoulders, and I look at the U.S., look at corporations, you look at how things are distributed as far as representation is and how people sort of want status quo, and I'm like, we may be right back here again and have eight years. Right. That's right. And that's that's what I'm getting at. And I think he has the lowest approval rating, I think, of any president, right? I mean, is that true? <laughs> I think he's got the lowest. Some right. point. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. has the Republican Party stepped away from him? You know, I, I, think it, I mean, it's a little early, right? It's a little early. You know, no, it's, it's, it's very late. Well, but yeah, it's, it's really late. And po- politically speaking, it's not, though, right? Because they've, they've got, you know, the, technically the, the Democratic Party is, is starting this run way early. If they're going to step away politically and say, well, we're going to put up another candidate, they'll do that a little bit farther down the road. But the indications are they're not going to do that. Right. Well, no, the reason I say it's late is that you have to go back to 2015. Okay. So, you know, the thing that I always looked at is somehow we are acting surprised Mm -hmm. that Trump is Trump and Trump is in the White House. Donald Trump is the manifestation of who we are as a country. Yep. He 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 did that not. That was a resounding yep. Ouch. Ouch. So so yeah. the reality is, and we were talking about this earlier today about children, and 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 the fact that you know the generations are different, and he is a manifestation of who we are. Mm-hmm. Somehow, we as a country began to believe that there were shortcuts. Somehow, we as a country began to believe that we were somehow entitled, Mm -hmm. that we didn't have to put in the hard work, that we could get away without being critical in our thinking, that our values were somehow transactional, that the only thing that we needed to do was be big enough, brash enough, loud enough, and America would succeed. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is who we are as a nation. And so if we are viscerally disgusted by what we are seeing, then we have to have a conversation within ourselves to say, well, wait a minute. How did we collectively fall for this con? It was because that's what we wanted. Yes. And it's what we wanted. And if we want to do something different, we have to do something different. One of the things that I started doing is I'm spending um, more time on Twitter because I said, I have to understand where these conversations are, what's happening. And there are a lot of different conversations Mm -hmm. happening on Twitter. Twitter is our digital town square. It kind of is. <laughs> yes. No, yeah. it's, not, it's not kind of. Yeah, it is. Literally, yeah. it is our, it. it's our digital town square. Yeah. And, you know, when in, and it is a uh, supportive yet vicious medium yeah. <laughs> yep. where you can see the best and the worst of people. But what we can't do is be afraid of engaging in those conversations, as difficult, as mucky as they are, we can't be afraid of it. And so Trump is who we are. Mm-hmm. And so well, the pro- go on. Who, who's we, right? Because he didn't you, get all the votes. I think he's <laughs> using the, the collective yeah. cons- consciousness of, of we, America, mm-hmm. right? Not we as in you right. and me. Well, no, of course. But yeah. I mean, even the votes, you mm-hmm. think about representing America, yes. Should he have gotten 90, maybe even 80% of the votes? He didn't. Mm-hmm. And so there is a set of people over <laughs> here mm-hmm. that you know either voted for Hillary or didn't vote at all mm-hmm. that are saying, I'm not that. And so mm-hmm. while he ends up being the person who is represent, mm-hmm. representing the country, just as Barack was the person mm-hmm. for eight years before that, right? 
there'd be plenty of people who would say he didn't represent me mm-hmm. and <laughs> which is there's a big amount of truth to that so mm-hmm. i would say yes he's the person that we have today to represent but he doesn't his mm-hmm. value like me too right oh just grab him by the such and such mm-hmm. and then you've got women over here i mean there's a large tech company you know on the east side now where there's something going around about women are claiming once again harassment when mm-hmm. this company's been in business for quite a number of years, mm-hmm. why are we still here? Yeah. So I would say, yes, he does represent to some extent, but to some extent, no. No, I agree with you. I'm not saying that he represents, you know, the best of who we are. Right. And the American ideal and the aspiration. But he does represent who we are mm-hmm. in terms of a country, in terms of how we are being perceived in the world. Yeah. And, and what we look at, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, and I remember saying this several years ago, um, after the election, um, we went back into, this was when I was doing my doctorate, and um, we came back after the election, and we literally had to have kind of a, 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 a coping session with people being <laughs> distraught. I mean, there were like groups that had to come together, not just in class, but across yes. broad spectrums of our of our nation, because people were having difficulty making sense of it. And I remember saying um, uh, in that debriefing class that, as difficult as it may be to consider uh, a Trump presidency, the one thing we cannot do if we are to move past it is to come out and say that 63 million people were wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people. That it's, it's, you can disagree with their choice, but if you can't see what they saw and create some path of reconciliation and understanding to shift, and engage them such that you can bring them out of whatever they saw that yeah. led them to that conclusion, then you're missing the point. And that point, I think, is what we've been talking about, which is, you know, what is the work of allies? What is this work that we have to do in mm-hmm. terms of rebuilding our culture and creating right. our culture? How do we get back to critical thinking? What does it mean to have a 21st century education system, a 21st century healthcare system? What does it mean to have women and men have equal rights? What does it mean to move beyond this race conversation yeah. we're having? That's the work we're being called to do. And if we just simply say that those 63 million people are somehow uneducated or lazy or right. or somehow otherwise removed we do ultimately position ourselves to get back to your point jeremy yeah. of another trump election yeah right so there's work that we have to do exactly. and, you, and you can't push them away yeah but right. who's who's we and who wants to do the work do you have to i don't remember who it was I can picture him. He was in Trump's cabinet for a little bit and he was talking, you know, talking about make America great and somebody was referring back to the 60s and somebody had mentioned, well, blacks weren't living so great at that time period. He was still at the civil rights, what have you. But, so, but they had each other. They had family. Yeah. And so they were great. And it's, I think it was a Jeff Sessions mm-hmm. that was saying that, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, yeah. and so it makes you kind of fast forward to today Things were great for a certain set of people back then, and it's still great. Mm-hmm, and it's still great for a number of those folks today. So, well, I, would, I think it's part of the reason why we're here. So, so that sixty-three million is roughly sixteen percent of the total population of three hundred and eighty million. Those are really rough numbers. Now, take out children, take out those that can't vote, mm-hmm. um, take out those that don't vote, right? And, and, and you're starting to pare that percentage down. But 16% of the total population of the United States of America have made a decision. That 16% can be projected, and this is obviously rough, but can be projected as go back to 1950, go back to 1960. Is it possible that this uh, 16% um, are the people that generationally come from um, families and people that 
were doing well in the 1950s and 60s. Small towns were still doing well. Farmers, um, you know, were still um, a part of, of Americana. It wasn't, you know, massive corporate um, uh, farming infrastructure. Uh, you know, so um, the idea of of my kids are going to have it better than 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 the generation before was still very much a reality. Move into the 70s, uh, move into the oil embargo, move into the 80s. Things begin to change. Things begin to change. 20 years down the road from that, and that group of people are no longer sitting in a position in which things are great for them anymore. They can no longer see this future where my parents, my children are going to have it better than I did. My father. Um, uh, and this was this was a pivotal moment for me um, when I was probably about 43 uh, in a phone conversation apologized to me, which my dad doesn't apologize for anything. But for him to say, I, I am sorry that you and your generation will never have it as good as 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 my generation did. And now that I see that, I, I'm, I'm sorry that you won't. You're working harder than I ever did and um, for less. And he's right. You know, um, so, so, you know, that's, that is that 16%. That represents that 16%. That's why Trump was elected. Trump was elected because that 16% is saying, yeah, yeah, let's make America great again. You know, let's bring back industry. Let's bring back jobs. Let's bring back, you know, why wouldn't we coal, use coal? Why wouldn't we, uh, you know, smelt steel and aluminum here? Why are we not doing this? The lie that they got told, and uh, no matter the work that Trump does, he will not be able to reverse this because the gears of this industry are, the gears of this system are too big and moving too fast, is globalization. Coal's never, you know, coal will not be, coal is going to die. Steel is not coming back, and even if it does, because because we are in 2019, the ability to make the you know steel manufacturing and aluminum manufacturing more efficient means that this town is not going to th- survive and thrive off of the steel mill. It's not. It's going to hire 16 people. It's going to hire 20 people, and that's it. Small towns are not going to come back because industry comes back. This is the lie they were told. This is the lie that they believed, and this is where we sit. We cannot go backwards. Well, no, it's funny. Um, uh, Buttigieg has a um, saying that he um, he argues that you can't build a future on a gang. You, hmm. you, you, yeah. You, yeah. You can't do that. And so part of the conversation, <clears throat> and I think I said this on um, one of our um, earlier broadcasts, is that we actually have to take stock of how, if you are progressive or moderate middle of the road, how we've actually constructed these conversations for the broader aspect of our country. So when we talk about climate change, we've elevated that to some erudite, esoteric bullshit Mm -hmm. that if you are living in West Virginia, if you are in Allegheny County, if you are in Flint, and you are seeing a boarded up town, or if you're seeing the youth get to a point where they can get up and leave and do so and don't come back, you're beginning to question what it means to actually care about these issues like climate change, because they're not making a connection to you and your home. And so I've said, and I believe this wholeheartedly, I don't want to hear anyone talk about climate change if not also talking about West Virginia. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear a conversation about about a barrier reef that doesn't take into account clean water in Flint or, or, or anything that's happening around creating a priority for those communities that are suffering as a result of the industrial changes that have happened in this country. And so that's our job as a collective nation, as a collective, we can't afford to leave 16% of our nation behind just because we've kind of ensconced ourselves on the coast or we can now get into the flyover culture and not really pay attention to it. And so when I talk about not ignoring 63 million people. I'm not saying that I want to 
embrace your you know your your racism or your sexism or right. your homophobia what i'm saying is i see what is happening to you economically i see the educational deficiencies i see the healthcare deficiencies and it is my common cause with you as an american to make sure that we are creating a future that is considering and embracing of you yes that's what we have to do yep. and that's not a democratic or republican it's issue a, it's an american <clears throat> issue and we it's have lost issue. that right Correct. right we have lost that <clears throat> talking to some extent just about basic humanity yeah mm -hmm. living right yes <laughs> and so yes but why is it so difficult why in this country do we not have clean water in flint why did we have a levee breakdown in katrina many moons ago in this country right we are first world plenty of resources plenty of economic and physical resources. We have the tools to be able to build these things. And yet we don't, we have scientists telling us this is coming, right? And we knew at some point it'd be coming anyway, a super storm. They come every year. Mm -hmm. Why are we still here having sort of the same conversation over and over and over? I think it goes to some extent, back to your point, Jeremy, about the, the wheels of the mm -hmm. system are so large. Even if they're not moving quickly, they're so large, much like the Titanic, it's tough to turn them, to slow them down, to go in another direction. But how can we, we have to go there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're going to have likely more Flint's, more mm -hmm. Katrina's, like, which they've seen on record already, these things are happening more often anyway, as far as mm -hmm. like super storms. But then we likely will have more water situations and whatever mm -hmm. else it might be, what's next? Mm -hmm. How do we engage the right people to have these conversations, to be able to move everyone for, which I felt like Barack was trying to do, it wasn't just about bettering mm -hmm. a certain <clears throat> set of people, it was like trying to better America. everybody's situation yeah Correct. i think we are the people right i think um i think when we 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 have this illusion that we are separate from the climate we're separate from our environment and i think if every single one of us would be connected back to the environment and the climate and the importance on how we coexist in this space then we probably would be treating our lands and our waters and our air differently but it's not you know it's not a like david was saying it's not a democratic it's not a, it's not a political thing it's not a religion thing it is a humanity thing it's all of us together being able to realize that there is no separation between each other so is it going the, to take some catastrophic another catastrophic event do you think it doesn't have to it doesn't I, have to but it seems like that's what humanity does i mean humanity if, responds if, to catastrophes well we right. pay attention to we do catastrophe right mm -hmm. i mean i mean we can go ahead and we can think about you know 9 11 yeah. on how everybody came together in the united states and was like jumping into people's cars helping one another yes. out because we helped each other out as americans right. in that process we also divided ourselves from the world as well too right. it was it was still an us and them situation yeah. And so, but we've seen already on how people can come together. Here in yeah. Seattle, when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, we came together mm -hmm. as a community, as Seattleites. <laughs> so cold. February? Right? right? But we still came together, that we have the, uh, the, the ability to come together as people, depending on what we connect to. If we all connected back to our planet, then we would be able to see the difference and how climate change affects us. I think the issue, the cognitive dissonance that, that is occurring is, um, because you both said something very similar, David and Jerry, about um, you know, connecting to these broader ideas, connecting Flint to, you know, to, um, to the Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and um, the cognitive dissonance is that we're, we are working those wheels, those are systems of a of an error that whether we like it or not is mm -hmm. becoming bygone uh and you know um, and capitalism is is that thing now when i say that 
I'm not saying, so we need to swap it up for socialism. Guess what? We've used that one up too. Well, then maybe we ought to try communism. Tried it. Doesn't work. All those things have been tried. I'm, I, you well, know, I think they're labels. They are labels. Yeah. I, mean, I think they're labels, and we haven't. And and you know what the thing I love about <laughs> this podcast is that we can speak truths, right? Yeah. Yep. And so the truth is that we have a lot of people who are in positions of power who, when they speak, uh, actually whether they are intellectually honest or correct, their words have weight. Mm-hmm. And so when you have people who are intentionally manipulating and intentionally lying and intentionally attempting to divide us from one another, Mm -hmm. the environment in which you can come together to deal with big issues and big things becomes harder. What made this nation great in the 50s Um, Because I think that was probably one of the most incredible periods of growth and birth. And we see it and we are still, frankly, living in the shadows of it. Absolutely. Still enamored by it. Is that as a nation, we sent hundreds of thousands of young men to war, World War II. In order to keep this nation moving, we had hundreds of thousands of women. Mm-hmm. going into factories right in order to ensure that we were able to win the war we sent tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of black and brown and asian men into war so at a particular point in our country we didn't care whether you were black brown right. or anything we didn't care whether you were male or female we didn't care whether you were tall straight whatever we just knew we had a war it was all hands that on we, deck it was mm-hmm. all hands on deck and we had to go that's what is required now yes and so there's a piece of work that um uh, reverend william barber has talked about And he describes that we are entering a period and we are in the painful throes of what he describes as a third reconstruction. Mm. Mm. And what he says is, if you think about the reconstruction um, following the Civil War, you then had a 50-year period that kind of brought you to the 1950s. We're kind of now at another point post the Civil Rights Movement where we are now entering to another period where we need to convene a national conversation because of what you just said. The wheels of this system are grinding to a halt. Mm. They're not moving forward, they're grinding to a halt. Mm. The reason they're grinding to a halt is fundamentally as a result of what we were talking about earlier with communication, the internet, we are able to instantaneously see whether what we're being told is what is actually real. Yeah. The reason you can have disorientation, the reason you can have um, misinformation and mistruth is there's no bona fide way of validating or checking it. And so when people say things like, oh, well, we've never, this is the worst it's ever been, and we've never seen anything <laughs> like this, is like, really? Yeah. So let me get this straight. So somehow with the Emancipation Proclamation that took two and a half goddamn years to get from D.C. to Houston, you think this is the worst? Yeah. Yeah, you think po- you think post-America Civil War right. was, was somehow better than this? Right. You know, and, and again, if you really want to understand why you have the actual dates of the um, certification of the election through electoral college, it's because it took, what, two and a half to three weeks to ride from every part of the colonies up to Philadelphia in order to validate the election. So that's why it takes two weeks. It's not because it takes two weeks. So the reality of needing to look at this country our assumptions, our beliefs, and everything that is going to take to have a 21st century America is what goes into this reconstruction. So take Elizabeth Warren's um, uh, argument about um, tech companies and wanting to break them up. 
I don't know whether she's right or not. But at the end of the day, when virtually every transaction that we have is done online, at what point, and this is the question, it's not the solution, the question, at what point does the internet become a public utility? Mm. Now, Think of what is a utility today. Mm-hmm. Water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Electricity. Right. You know, we have an interstate highway system. So if transportation, water, and power are seen as things that are public utilities, what is a public utility in the 21st century? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so... We have to give ourselves permission to reimagine what it looks like to build a modern America, a modern America that from a construct of whiteness actually says, you know what, on the basis of equity, men and women should be paid the same Mm -hmm. on the basis of race. There is no normative nature now. To do that work, you're going to have to do the social work mm-hmm, and, the, and yeah. the person-driven work of saying, what does it mean, and we talked about this last time, to step out of that privilege? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to give up that preference that you don't even know you're enjoying? And so it's not about having the answers, but I do think we are, the, we are arriving at the point, as Barbara says, we're in the painful throes if you will, the labor pains of what this third reconstruction will look like, where we literally have to have a conversation with ourselves, amongst ourselves, that we have to define our future. So that's why I say 63 million people, I can't write them off. Nope. I can disagree with what was manifested as a result of that. But if I write them off, I write myself off. Yeah. And so that's where I think we have to kind of get to. And that's hard work. It is hard work. Which, you know, I mean, we've got to, we, we've got to admit that this, this work that we're doing, especially with reconstructing narratives, is um, I think it has been highlighted even more with Trump being in office. You know, the empowerment of women, diversity, equity, inclusion being on the rise right now. It's like everyone is talking about, well, we need to have equity, we need to have diversity, we need to have inclusion, but yet we're still excluding people. We are still excluding people. We're not calling people in. We are a call-out culture where when we see somebody (laughs) wrong, we call them out. And we want to shame them and we want to blame them for everything. Nobody is coming to the table with the idea on how can we reconstruct our narrative and move towards a place of healing so this shit doesn't happen all over again. And that's the hard work. And I am seeing that, you know, especially with with being in in the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, that we're not including the voices. We talk about building a table. We talk about, you know, bringing people in, black, brown, Asian people. But then yet, when we see someone of European descent, we're like, "Mm mm-mm, you need to sit out. Mm. Aren't we supposed to be inviting all voices to the table, even though they may take up space, if they are coming from a place where it's like, you know what, I I got to learn, I've got to listen. But then yet I hear black and brown people saying, I'm tired of teaching. I'm tired of being the one that you're coming to for advice. It is an emotional labor, which it is, which I, you know, I mean, it's like, how do we, how do we work around that where we can just all come to the table and invite everyone to what a does, place what does a what does a table look like of equity when equity can never really truly be a reality like how do we create equity when there's when the world works off of inequity does that make sense <laughs> yeah yeah it yeah. does i mean you know that was some of the you know, that was some of the work that John Rawls talked about in uh, Theory of Justice, where he says, you know, if you were to enter into the veil of ignorance, who would you choose to be? And if, I mean, if you didn't know who you were entering into that veil, what type of society would you create? What type of opportunity would you create if you knew 
that there were going to be, quote, winners and losers mm-hmm. based on kind of once you emerge from that veil of ignorance and you didn't know what your position would be, you could be a winner or the loser, how would you create a society? And what Rawls posits is, you would create a society where there was some sort of a safety net. There was opportunity to to grow, to learn, that there would be um, opportunities to um, succeed. Right, to, um, to be able to build. Just right, in to case build. you came out the loser, right. Right? because if you knew you were going to come out the winner, <laughs> right. then you may create something completely different right. altogether. Most but same. since you don't know, right. I got to make sure that if I come out on the end that I don't want, that I have an opportunity to be able to recover. Right, and that's what, you know, and again, this we kind of reacted to earlier, you know, this lie that is being told about, oh, well, Democrats won't be socialism. Well, okay, you strict constructionists, if you really want to get clear, <laughs> go back to the freaking Constitution. It's a social contract. The reason we call it the social contract is we said there were five things that we were going to do for one another. And those five things are still what keeps us together today. But those five things do not mean the same things they did Back in 1789 yeah. right, right. as opposed to 2019. And so anyone who says that they are strict, you know, kind of, you know, strict constructionists or an originalist in the Constitution, I will say probably you need to take a seat <laughs> because even the founding fathers had the common sense and the last of the five things they said, um, you know, to ensure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and the posterity. They said, look, we don't have all the answers. We know <laughs> it's not us. We're not the end, but we believe collectively that we have a responsibility to figure out whatever the hell is coming. Yeah, we got to figure that out too. So we're going to give ourselves the space to do it. That's what we have to get back to. And that's where I refuse to believe that our best days are behind us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason, then, um, T, you and I have seen a world that looks like a world that is growing. You know, when we talk about American exceptionalism and we're still chugging away on the East Coast and that pitiful thing called Amtrak, <laughs> when there are, you know, when in Europe they've dug a tunnel <laughs> under the English Channel, and I can go from central Paris to central London, or I can go from Beijing to Shanghai in five hours, you still want to sit up and call this exceptional? (laughs) Let's get back to what exceptional looked like. Exceptional looked like we would say, we're going to the moon, and we went. Right. We're going to educate all of our children, and we did that. We're going to solve diseases, and we did that. That's what an exceptional yeah. country looks like. It is. This is um, this is exactly this exemplifies exactly what I mean by the wheels of this system are becoming bygone. Um, you know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a question, then I'm gonna answer it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, who's gonna pay for it? And and that question immediately comes out of um, of of the of of this of this system of this uh, capitalism. Um, you know, capitalism is in its truest form is not is not um, infinite debt, which is what we have now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like well, can't afford it, can't pay for it. Well, let's borrow some more money. 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 That doesn't work. Um, and um, and yet at the same time, um, you know, it's a construct, and and it's a construct that can be dismantled. Because what you're referring to and what you're talking to, and I think it's where the true power is, and I think it's also where the true um, wealth is, is in is in human ingenuity, human vision, and and uh, human drive. And we collectively determine that we're going to do something. We collectively can figure out how to do it. Um, you know, we want to tra- change the transportation of this country. We can do it. We want to change the energy grid of this country. We can do it. We want to. We want to change these things. We can change these things. The system we have to work with um, does have limitations. Well, but here's where I'm going to push you on that. So, 
Why is it that we're having the how are we going to pay for it conversation after we give away $1.3 trillion to the upper half percent of this country? Oh, well, keep going. So, I mean, so, so that's this is the wrong time to have the affordability conversation. Yeah. So, I'm not even going to entertain that if for no other reason. The one thing I've come to understand about the, the, uh, the distinction between Republicans and Democrats is that there is no distinction. And what I mean by that is it is about power to determine what we spend, not whether we spend. That is the distinction. So the priorities of a Republican Party that is in power now chose to spend one point whatever trillion dollars on financial giveaways. Yeah. The choices that Democrats have been pushing and erroneously at times and properly at others has been to invest in education and roads and infrastructure and right. those things. So the idea that somehow one party or another has a greater level of fiscal responsibility is a lie. It is about whose priorities will determine where we invest. And so for me, that's where the equity conversation shows up. That's where the, the systemic conversation comes up. Because when we talk about education and you know some uh, candidates are talking about increasing teacher pay, okay, let's increase teacher pay, but let's not think about it as a zero sum game. We're going to increase teacher pay because we actually see education as an economic imperative that is directly related to national security. Because I'm going to say this and people will get mad at me. <laughs> I don't want a dumb person trying to fire a laser. Yeah. <laughs> so I need you to be as educated and as smart. So what you're saying is you don't want a person who can't define what a laser is to fire the laser. That no, makes I, sense. No, I'm just saying, if if we're going to see Jerry over there laughing. He's right. If if we're going to a a, a space where we're having, you know, uh, cyber wars and all these things, I want the most educated American society sure. that we can have. Yeah. Right. I don't want to think about parts of this country not having opportunities. Yeah. So yeah, correct. I want to put teachers in, 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 in positions to learn. I want to figure out how that infrastructure that for 50, 60, 70 years that supported the mining of coal can ultimately now support the development of of wind turbines and, mm -hmm. and solar panels. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, you have a you have the trains, you have the roads, yep. you have the ports right there. The entire infrastructure is there. So why can't we prioritize industry in those areas that flourish and we know that they flourish? Certainly. And so this is the work of building a 21st century America. And it starts with recognizing that we're not in the zero-sum game right. around, oh, we can't afford it. Now, you could afford to give $1.3 trillion away. Now you're going to tell me you can't afford health care? Yeah, and that's crazy. You know, the, the question I <laughs> or, asked earlier. Or, or, or how could you not be smart enough in giving <laughs> away $1.3 trillion to not take the $25 billion, not to build a damn wall? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Here's your tiny percentage of, of the money you just reallocated. Right, right. Yep. And, you know, yep. if that's your priority, right. yeah. the, the reality is of, of who's going to pay for it is it's not that the money isn't there. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I asked the question mm -hmm. um, and, and you eloquently answered it. The money is there. Mm -hmm. And if we want to talk about reallocation and that the redistribution of wealth is is um, is uh, is socially abhorrent, there is a redistribution of wealth. It's coming out of your pocket, listener. It's coming out of my pocket. It's coming out of David's. It's coming out of everybody's pocket yeah. here. And it's being redistributed. Oh, and by the way, this has been going on for a long time. And we just emerged out of the largest redistribution of wealth in American culture. 
which is the past recession, which is the loss of millions of people's homes, millions of people's dreams, millions of people's property, the fruition (coughs) of the American dream pulled out from underneath people and redistributed back to uh, to a group of people who who didn't need it. Didn't need it. Right. That's a massive redistribution of wealth. The money is there to pay for these things. Right. We have extraordinarily rich corporations who don't yes. pay any taxes. Mm-hmm. This goes back to, I didn't think of it in terms of, you know, you playing this game and you don't know if you're going to come out a winner or a loser. And I think to some extent, the game is being played and the people who are winning, the people who are in a great financial position, um, already don't want to give that up, obviously. And even if they don't lose much, but you can help others, then it almost seems like in that case, you are losing because you're helping others, which means it might have taken from you. And so if that's the case, because it does feel like to some extent, that's the case. The people who are the top half percent owning pretty much everything don't want to give anything to, I'm just going to generalize here, to the general person. The 16 percent, I can tell you that 16 percent don't look anything like Trump as far as the money money goes. Not at all. And so so when I think about doing this work of equity and belonging and inclusion, why we're still kind of having the same conversation, I think this is why we're still having the conversation. Because there's a large subset of the population that doesn't want to change. There are some that are in such great positions, they don't want anything to change because things are great for you. Mm-hmm. There are some mm-hmm. that are ignorant and are probably okay with their position and don't necessarily want anything to change either. Because if they give to others, then you are losing as part of this transaction versus from what we talked about a little bit in the last podcast that I was on was the pie gets bigger. You don't lose, the pie expands, the pie gets bigger as opposed to it's the same small Sarah Lee pie that's eight inches <laughs> and everybody only gets and now we got to divide it by more pieces and now the, right, the piece that right. I get is, is extremely small. Right. Yeah. And so how do you, I kind of go back to like my earlier question because it, does, it feels like yes, we've made some two steps forward and then 2.2 steps back. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you're kind of in the same position that you were. How do we, what is the incentive to get the majority, like everyone moving forward in the same direction? Let's say you are a racist. Why are you going to want to help those folks over there that don't look anything like you? you you're not. Otherwise, you might already be doing that. But instead, you want to go off and get your pitchforks and go march in Charlottesville. Like, how are we going to get to a place? Pitchforks are a different group. The, that's true. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I picture the mob and the crowd. That you, right. Right. It was a tiki torch. <laughs> that's right. It was right. a tiki torch. Right. It right. felt like, you know, as far as you look at it, it's kind of like, oh, there's, there's the group, right? There's the crowd. And if you look a certain way, you, you know, you might want to turn the other direction. But, you know, how do we how do we actually advance this whole conversation? Because while it is 2019, the stuff that I'm seeing on different reports, mm-hmm. it feels like the 60s. Yeah. And I didn't live in the 60s. And even if I had, I would have been very, very young. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but you think about my parents and their stories. I'm like, this is the same damn story that those folks were talking about. Why are we still here? And what work can actually be done to get people to shift? Mm-hmm. I've seen people come out. I've watched some documentary about somebody who was a clan member who's no longer a clan member. It's like, that was a whole lie. I can't believe I was involved in that for this amount of time. And he goes to look to convert people from that group of people to a broader, I don't want to use the word normal, but the, understanding. The, the, right, understanding, compassionate, that you will, you're not carrying those racist overtures. Right. Like, how, right. you know, short of going out one to one to one to one, like, how do you get sort of this movement so that? you're having conversations about how we advance the 21st century in the right way where it brings everybody along. I I mean, I think part of it is realizing that it is going to be a series of those one-to-one-to-one-to-many conversations that, uh, you know, if you actually, and again, this is going into that 63, 63 million. One of the things that, I remember hearing 
as they were describing themselves as a silent majority was, and if you, and you look at it today, we can barely bring ourselves to say white mm. in this country. We are now having conversations where you're starting to see more uh, discussions around privilege and more discussions around whiteness. But I would say up until probably um, a few, uh, probably like four or five years ago, the reason the, the environment was able to accelerate the manifestation of what Trump is, is because we weren't even saying white. Mm-hmm. If you listen to media reports, we were hearing things like Americans are upset. Americans believe. I was like, well, nobody talked to me. I mean, <laughs> like, who the hell are these Americans? But that was being used in replace of saying white. And so if you are a white American, and I'm not even saying European, if your mindset is white and you're hearing everyone talk about black folk and brown folk and Muslim folk and anyone else, and you don't hear your name called out, you begin to tell yourself it's an invasion that you are being ignored. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we got to do is be willing to identify everybody in this conversation in order to make sure that we have everybody represented and all of those interests available. And this is what I think Barbara is talking about when he speaks to the work of this third reconstruction. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think one of the things um, as we wrap up here, I feel I feel like society can move forward, humanity can move forward when we're able to see each other in relationship. The uh, it's relational and not transactional, and if we look at it that way, then we wouldn't feel like anybody is losing anything, but actually empowering each other to build and reconstruct, like what David's talking about. But because we have this loser-winner society that we've developed, if we are going to change the narratives and bring everyone to the table, and like you were saying to me, because there's going to be some people that are going to be like, I'm not going to be part of that conversation, because being part of that conversation means I need to change my lifestyle. And my lifestyle has been comfortable or perspective. Everything is fine. My kids graduated from the finest schools. I have my house. I I don't got to worry about anything. And so why, right? Why should I even worry about anything? So, but if we're in relationship, then we have responsibility and accountability to one another. And then it becomes reciprocal where we're like, Okay, let's have this table of equity for everyone. It sounds like you have responsibility to the community. Yes. And the community is everyone. Yes. Not just those who look like you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, let's um we'll wrap it up and we we had a really good conversations. I actually was taking notes. And so in this podcast, we talked about politics, presidential elections, climate change, uh, war, wheels of the system, reconstructing narratives, inclusion versus exclusion, a call out culture versus a call in culture. The Constitution is a contract. Exceptionalism, social contract, contract, Mm -hmm. fiscal responsibility, building a 21st century America, redistributing wealth. We talked about pretty much everything, but... And all before brunch. All before (laughs) brunch, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, that's how we roll. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Tamiko. Thank you, David, so much. Before we completely wrap up, um, how can people get a hold of you? What are your social medias? Uh, social media, uh, Twitter, um, O. David Jackson um, on Twitter, um, O. D. Jackson. And um, yeah, that's it. LinkedIn. LinkedIn, yeah, you can do it there too. Yeah. 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 LinkedIn. I'm not as much on Twitter, but <laughs> I probably should be. But I, you know, for me, I want to make sure that I've got the right perspective and voice before I start speaking publicly Mm -hmm. right there's some old you 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 kind of got to check yourself check your own Mm -hmm. house get your own house in order before you go out and start getting followers to Mm -hmm. to your cause Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we'll just stick with linkedin linkedin (laughs) uh linkedin 
on Facebook as well too, Jerry Valarosa, um, Instagram. I'm kind of like on all of it right now. And we, you can find us actually on the, uh, what is the uh, social media for Plowline? Uh, Plowline has uh, most platforms. So um, facebook.com backslash Plowline, um, at Plowline on Twitter. Um, we're also on Instagram, although um, Jerry's not managing it just yet. <laughs> um, uh, we've got a LinkedIn page, so you can search for a LinkedIn page uh, on uh, Plowline. Uh, we're on SoundCloud as well as uh, the iTunes store at the moment. Um, I want to thank very much Tomiko Davis and David Jackson for joining us once again. Uh, awesome conversation. Really enjoyed it as always. I want to thank my co-host Jerry Balarosa to know. And, <laughs> go ahead. Yes, and I actually wanted to encourage our listeners that if they have any questions or any kind of feedback to please reach out to us at a plowline at gmail.com. And if you want to support the, the Plowline podcast, we have a Patreon page, uh, patreon.com backslash plowline. So go there and check it out. We're going to have some swag coming up here pretty quick. Uh, so thank you so much. I'm Jeremy Tunnell, and we greatly appreciate you listening and supporting.